Well, good morning, everybody. Happy New Year to everyone, and probably, I think, what's probably about half the congregation online is, I know it's those winter months now where there's just cold and flu and COVID's going around, so, you know, we just, uh, we miss you guys being here in person, uh, but we know how that is. So, well, we all know what happens with the New Year, right? We, uh, we make those commitments. We make our New Year's resolutions. We say, this is going to be the year that I do something different, right? And we all know the, the major ones, right? We, we vow that we're, we're going to lose weight. We're going to eat better. We're going to get more sleep. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop all of my bad habits. Um, I'm going to learn something new. I'm going to be better with my finances. You know, and a lot of times as believers, you know, we, we like to, I'm going to, I'm going to commit to, to reading God's word more and I'm, I'm going to take time and I'm going to, to pray, right? Um, and I'm not here to, to say, you know, those are bad. Those are all great and noble things. And I, I really do want you to succeed. So if you made a New Year's resolution, I hope you are successful with it. I, I pray that whatever you are planning to work on, that it would be a blessing to you. Um, you know, but, but they're hard, right? New Year's resolutions are hard. Making a commitment to something and trying to stick with it is really, really difficult. And I, I think for a lot of us, I don't think it's the will. I don't think it's our desire. I think a lot of the problem why we struggle with these is because of the time factor, right? Whenever we vow to do something different, a lot of times what that means is that's going to take the place of something else. I mean, again, let's just, let's just take working out, right? I'm going to commit to working out, and well, there, there's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, another hour of your day where a lot of us are just thinking, well, where am I going to find that time, right? We can only get up so early, and we only have so much energy at night. There's just a, a reality to the physical limits of the human body, and I think that's the bigger problem is we're always trying to make these adjustments to say, well, if I want to do this, a lot of times something has to give, and, and I think that's that oftentimes is the, the hard part is where do I put my time and where do I put my commitment? You know, and there's just also the reality, guys, let's just call it out, we're sinners, right? We like the easy road. We like what's convenient. We, we like what's easier, right? We don't want to put in the hard work. That's just the reality of human nature as well. And so New Year's resolutions are, are difficult and they're hard. But as I said, again, if you made one, good for you. I'm praying with you. And I, I really do want you to be successful because whatever you probably committed yourself to, again, you are going to be better for it following through. Well, um, George, George Carlin talked about this idea of time, though, right? Because as I said, commitments are hard because it takes the place of something else. And, and George Carlin, after his wife passed away, had a pretty good idea of the concept of time. And here's what he said. He said, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings, but shorter tempers, wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more, but we have less. We buy more, but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense, more knowledge, but less judgment, more expert, yet more problems, more medicine, but less wellness. 
We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get too tired, read too little, watch too much TV, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions, but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We have learned how to make a living, but not a life. And we've added years to life, not life to years. And I thought that was pretty profound, that ending, right? When we think about time, time is finite, but yet infinite, right? Time is, is finite in this world that on this earth, we are a vapor, we're, we're, we're a mist, we're, we're the, the very breath that comes out of our, our, our mouths in the large span of history, but yet there is an eternity that exists for us in time. And that time and eternity, it never, ever ends. And so how do we balance the infinite and the finite. What is it that we do with the time that we have on this earth? What is it that we commit ourselves to? How do I know what should be the priority in my life? And so we're going to start a new sermon series today called It's Time. And this is going to be a, an extended sermon series. This is actually going to walk us all the way through uh, the month of April. So we're going to go all the way through Easter with this sermon series. And my desire is that what I want us to see is what is God committing to? What has God made a priority that we should really try to understand? Because if we can understand better God's commitments, and we can have a better theological understanding of God's infinite wisdom and mind and, and character, then that should help to shape our commitments and our priorities. And more importantly, my hope is, is that as we look at all of the things that God committed to, that every week we would just be in awe of God and we would just want to worship him. And that when we come to the end of the sermon series, again, several months from now, is that we spend all of this time just being in the presence of God that it would be a conviction upon our hearts that as we then transition to that spring, that we would say, if that's what God made a priority in his life, then what am I going to make a priority? How is God going to revolutionize and transform my heart as we start to move forward? So that's, that's what we're going to be doing with this sermon series. And the way that we're going to be doing it is actually by looking at the back half of the book of John. So it's quite interesting if you never thought about this, but the first 11 chapters is, is all about, John, is about Christ's ministry. So, so John is attempting to prove that God, that Christ is God. That's his big overarching premise, right? That this Christ is the Messiah, is God. And he spends the first several chapters, again, talking about his ministry. We've got these seven miracles. And then chapters 12 through 21 is the final week. So, so about half of the book of John is concentrated on his final week of ministry, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That final week, 
that we see God is pouring out himself to his people and saying, here's all of the things that I am committing to. Here's all of the things that I'm promising to do that I'm going to fulfill in this back half of the book of John, in his final week that he spends here uh, in this, this ministry. Okay, uh, And so all of his, his entire history... All of his purpose is now culminating in this final week, right? So all of those covenants that he made to his people, all of the promises, all of the words of the prophets, all of the history of the Israelites and and what they had to go through, right? All of that is pointing to this moment. And God said, all of history I have concentrated into this, okay? And so God is going to make good on everything that he said he was going to make good on. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at. Now, again, just to quickly trace the coming of the Messiah, we see the very beginnings of that in Genesis chapter 3, right? When Adam and Eve sin, and God basically says to the serpent, you know, there is going to be a seed of a woman that's going to crush your head. And then in Genesis chapter 12, he makes the promise to Abraham, and he says, through your lineage is going to come to the Redeemer of the world. And then in Samuel chapter 7, he talks to David, and he said, there's going to be a seed from your line that will sit on the eternal throne, and he will rule with the scepter of judgment and authority. And then we just celebrated Luke chapters 1 and 2, did we not? And what a wonderful time that was together in the Christmas Eve service, guys. I really had a blessing just worshiping together. But but the coming of the Christ, the coming of the King is now here, the one that they've been waiting for for for, for years, for 2,000 years, and he, he shows up as a baby, and then he gets older, and then he begins his ministry. And now people are like, yes, again, this is the one. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's going to free us from the oppressive hand of the Romans and every other civilization that has fought against us. And it's interesting because three times earlier in the book of John, they they try to push Jesus to this moment where they say, Jesus, do your thing. Be the king. And he says... Not yet. It's not my time. Right? And we, we first see that in the miracle of turning the water into wine, and he talks to his own mom, and he's like, Mom, don't bother me with this. Right? And it seems really ironic that Jesus is pushing off what he's come for. <clears throat> but when we finally get to chapter 12, this is where Jesus now says, okay, now, now it's time. Now it's time for me to do what I came here to do. So if you have your Bibles, you guys can open up to John chapter 12. So Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Again, final week. He's prepared for his final act. This is his curtain call, if you will. He is going to do what everybody has been waiting for him to do. And now he says, yes, now it's time. But the interesting thing is, he's going to do it in a way that nobody expects him to do. 
So we're going to start there in John chapter 12, verse 1 through 11. So you can follow along with me. It said, six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of her burial or my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So Jesus is being honored at this banquet. Again, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, and and Martha's there. She's preparing, and she's serving, and Mary's there, and Lazarus, and they're just reclining with Jesus at the table. And Mary takes this nard, and, and, and it's about a can of soda is the amount that she had. And it, uh, this nard came from would come from areas of northern India up in the Himalaya mountains. It actually comes from a root uh, that's part of it. So, so this was a very, very expensive oil to get. Uh, if we were to think about oils in terms of diamonds, this was the Tiffany diamond, if you will. So, so just to give you an idea uh, of how precious this was. And they usually said that a lot of times people would use this if there were stress or anxiety, uh, people had trouble sleeping, they would try to use this to help kind of create comfort and soothing, okay? Um, And the Middle East is very hot, it's very dry, so a very common culture was that as people walked in their sandals, their feet would get dirty, you'd come into the home, and a servant would wash your feet and, and perhaps pour a drop of oil on your head as a sign of hospitality. That was not unusual, that was very common throughout the biblical times and throughout the Middle East. Right, But what Mary does is way beyond a normal servant. Right? What Mary does goes way beyond that aspect. Um, and again, we're told that she uses an amount that's about a, worth, a year's worth of wages for an average worker. Okay? So this is very, very expensive what Mary is doing here at the feet of Jesus. And then she lets her hair down, and she starts to wash Jesus' feet with her own hair. And a lot of times, uh, when a woman would let her hair down, that was usually a sign of loose morals. So the fact that Mary was willing to put her hair down was really kind of a very humbling aspect of what she was doing. Uh, and so she, she's, she's, she's washing her feet and, and at Jesus' feet. And I think a lot of us are probably thinking, man, there is a level of submission and humbleness here that is amazing. And I think some of us right now are probably sitting there going, feet are disgusting, right? 
to, to wash somebody's feet, let alone take your hair and wipe it all. Oh my gosh. Like, like what is going on, right? Well, this is what makes this so amazing. And, and we're told in, in the book of Matthew about what Mary does, that truly I tell you that whenever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Think about that. To engage in an act towards God, that he turns around and says to you, what you have done is so truly remarkable that you will always be spoken about in this very moment. That is the magnitude of what Mary has just done here at the feet of Jesus. Okay? So why? Why is it that Mary was willing to do this? Again, Judas calls her out and he says, this is such a waste of money, Mary. I don't understand you. There's so many poor people. We could, have, we could have given money. We could have fed people. We could have helped people. Now, again, we all know that Judas's motives are wrong in this, right? Because he's helping himself to the money bag. But, but why, Mary? What is it that is, that, that is moving you towards this? Well, we have to understand that, again, this is all part of God's design. And so a couple of things there. He, he, first off, he turns around and he says to Judas, he says, look, what she's doing is intended for the day of my burial. She's, she's setting this up, Judas, for my burial. Okay, so you need to stop whatever you're thinking right now. Because in olden times when people would die, right, in order to mask the smell of death and the putrid aroma, they would pour spices and oils all over the body and then they would wrap them in those linens and then they would put them in a cave so that way it wouldn't smell as bad, right? You can imagine what a decaying corpse would smell like. And then we have off to the side, right? We have the, the chief priests who are talking and they're plotting and they're saying, we need to kill Jesus and we need to kill Lazarus too. So we have this ominous foreshadowing of about what's going to happen. And, and it's interesting because they say to him, we need to kill him, right? Because... Many on account have gone after him. And some, some versions say the world has gone after him. Because what we have is not just the king of the Jews, but they're acknowledging that Jesus is king of the world. And then when it says to, that Mary has saved this, that word save means to watch over, to keep, to guard, to, to protect Right? She has accumulated a year's worth of wages in order to have this perfume. It's not like she just woke up the week before and said, Jesus is coming over. Let me go to the store and just buy some nard with the change laying around the house. She has probably been intentional for years to be saving up for this moment. And so... What Jesus has intended here is this. He says, I'm committing to my death. When I show up in this last week, 
I know exactly what's going to happen. I have come here to die, and Mary is preparing me for it. Okay, so hold on to that thought now, because now we're going to keep reading here in the book of John, and we're going to see how this next idea coincides with what just happened here. Okay, so now we're going to read John chapter, uh, verse 12 through 19. Says the next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out meeting to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And at first, the disciples did not understand all this. And only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had been given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And so the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So the crowd has heard that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem now. And they come out and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving these palm branches. And here he comes in this triumphant entry being escorted on a donkey. And Hosanna is that phrase that means save us, or save now, or God save us. Because again, the expectation was that Jesus was going to do what they were all hoping to do, which was to liberate them from the oppression of all of the surrounding people. They're so excited because they've seen what Jesus has been able to do. And they're, they're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're, they're going back to their Old Testament passages and saying, look, he's fulfilling what God has been saying. And we see that in Zechariah 9.9 when it talked about in that very passage that the king would come riding in on a donkey. And so there's this ecstatic feeling in the air. The atmosphere must have been electric. He's fulfilling it. He's doing it. He's coming. This is what we've been waiting for. And as I said, just in the last passage, now the Pharisees are saying the same thing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world is seeking after Jesus, both Jew and Gentile. And a couple other things here. You know, palm branches were a big deal in this time period. Uh, a palm tree could be about 50 feet high in the air. So it was a massive towering presence in the Middle East. And, and, and with these massive leaves, they were often depicted on coins and in buildings, a lot of times, again, as symbolic nature of, of, uh, of celebration and hol Jewish holidays and the idea that, that a palm branch was a symbol of goodness and grandeur and well-being and, more importantly, about victory. A palm branch was a symbol of triumph. And so when Jesus has come walking in, right, they're acknowledging the triumph that's about to happen. 
You know, a lot of times when the ancient Greeks would come back from the Olympics, those that won would be paraded through the town and that victor who had won the, the crown of olive leaves, we, we call it a gold medal now, right, would come waving a palm branch. And it's also interesting that, that when, when God freed his people through the Red Sea, when, when God destroyed the Egyptian army, God said to them afterwards, he said, now what you're going to do is you are going to celebrate what becomes known as the, the Feast of the Booths or the Tabernacle. You are going to spend seven days in the desert and you are going to make a makeshift hut and you are going to live in that and you are going to cover it with palm branches to acknowledge the victory that I just gave you over the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. Okay, so this idea is profound. And then he comes riding in on a donkey. And a donkey is a very symbolic nature of a humble stature because, again, a donkey was a poor man's animal. But when a, when a, a priest, a, a high-level priest, or a king was riding on a donkey, that was symbolic of his kingship in a time of peace. Because the horse was a war steed, right? You, you rode the horse when it was time for war. But in times of peace, to show that to people, you rode around on a donkey. And so what Jesus is doing here is making a very public declaration. He's making a public declaration of his kingship. He said, I am coming to claim my victory, and I am coming to claim the authority of my kingdom. Right? Remember that everlasting throne of David that I said somebody would sit on? Yeah, I'm coming to fulfill that. Remember the guy that you've been waiting for? I'm the guy and I'm coming to do that for you. And so Jesus is saying right out the gate here, I'm committing to my death and I'm committing to my kingship. Okay, so let's go back to Mary now for a moment. Now, now we get a sense of why Jesus has shown up. It helps us to better understand why Mary is doing what she's doing. So we've already said that to wash somebody's feet was cultural. We've already said to put spices on somebody was for their burial. But to anoint someone with oil was also significant. If we go back to 1 Samuel 16, where King David was anointed by, by Samuel, he took oil and he poured that on his head. That was a common custom to anoint the next king, that you would take him before the crowd and then you would pour the oil upon him. See, Mary's response to Jesus is probably the most appropriate thing anybody could do. She's willing to humble herself before the almighty God and Savior of this world. And again, I know a lot of us are thinking, why is she doing that? Who would wipe the feet with someone's own hair? But you know, this is not uncommon, right? We see this in Luke chapter 5 when, when Peter's out in the boat and they're fishing all night and then Jesus comes on and he says, look, 
Just put your net on the other side. And he's like, Jesus, we've been doing this all night. We haven't caught it. We're tired. We're exhausted. We're not going to catch anything. And he's like, just do it. And so he does it, and he throws the net out, and they have so much fish that they need other people to come and help. And what is Peter's response? He fell at the feet of Jesus. And he said, Lord, go away. I am a sinful man. And we have another example, too, where in Luke chapter 7, another woman by the name of Mary, and and this is a different Mary, and, and he's eating in the house of the Pharisees, and they're all gathered around Jesus, and she shows up. And she's just there, and everybody's looking at her. And all the Pharisees have the scowl in their eye thinking, what is she doing here? How dare she? And the implications is we get the idea that she's probably a prostitute. And what does she do? She gets down at the feet of Jesus and she starts to weep. She starts to kiss his feet. She also takes his hair and she washes his feet. And all the Pharisees are indignant at Jesus saying, doesn't he know who she is? And Jesus knows exactly who she is. She's a sinner like you and I. But he doesn't stop her. Just like he didn't stop Mary at that banquet. You know, probably the question we should be asking ourselves and not thinking that's disgusting But maybe we should be asking ourselves, why are there not more examples like this in the Bible? Because, see, Mary understands who her Savior is. Mary understands who her King is. And when Mary understood what she didn't deserve, she did the one thing that she thought was most appropriate. She gets down on her feet and she worships the king. You know, and as I said, Jesus came riding in to claim victory. He came to claim his kingship, but he's going to do it in a way that nobody thought. He's going to do it by giving up his life. He's going to die for his people. He has to die for the sins of you and I. Because there is a wrath and a judgment against our sins that can only be satisfied by the holiness of Christ. The life that I have lived is never worthy of satisfying that. And God knew that and said, I'm going to send my own son who's going to bear the consequences of what you and I have done so that you and I may be redeemed for the forgiveness of our sins. John Piper wrote this. He said, It's a beautiful thing when the worth of Jesus and the love of his followers match. 
See, when, when, when you and I are like Mary and we realize who we are in relation to who we're standing before, this is what should happen. I should have a love for Jesus like no other. And in all honesty, guys, I don't know if you and I will ever be able fully to comprehend what Christ did at the cross. I don't think we will ever fully understand the fact that the value of my life is now measured against the holiness and the life of Christ. To understand that he was willing to endure the pain and the embarrassment and the hard nature of the crucifixion of the cross, that somehow my dirty, filthy rags of sin was worth the price that Christ was willing to pay for you and I. I don't think we will ever fully comprehend that. And so as we go through this sermon series, again, my prayer is that we would understand what God has done as best as we can in our finite minds. My prayer and my hope is that the Spirit is working within your heart to call you to a place that you have never been before. I pray that this week we can have a merry moment of worship. And as Charles Spurgeon said, you must sit at his feet or you will never anoint them. He must pour out his divine teaching into you or you will never pour out a precious ointment upon him. Guys, when is the last time that you took some time to sit at the feet of Jesus and to anoint him as your king? To, to put aside everything else in your mind that you have scheduled for the day, that you have committed to, and have sat down and just called out to God and worshipped Him. When is the last time you've poured out your heart and soul to your God that you were willing to shed tears? So that's what I'm hoping and praying for for not just you, but for me as well. That at this week, and I have no idea what that's going to look like. Maybe it's you on a quiet walk in nature just talking to God. You leave your phone at home, you put the earbuds away, and you just talk with God. Maybe it's getting up and getting on the floor of your bedroom and just laying there and calling out to God. Maybe, maybe that's your moment. Maybe it's when you're driving in your car and as you're thinking about the, the message and the Spirit is working in your heart that you have to pull over to the side of the road and just confess and cry out to Him. Maybe that's your moment of worship. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I pray that at some point the Spirit leads you to that. The Spirit leads you to that moment where you can just worship who our King is. And here's the other thing that I want us to do. is not only have that moment, guys, but guys, 
Let's share this with one another. As you're engaging with this body of believers, ask the question, did you have your merry moment yet? What was it like? How did it go? I didn't have it yet. Well, let's pray. Let's pray that God leads us to that point. Guys, we shouldn't feel awkward about saying that we poured our heart out to God. That should be a natural response of who we are for the things that God has done in our lives. If God loved us enough to knowingly, willingly die for us, this should be our response of worship. Let's pray. Lord, this is not designed to be a forced aspect. Lord, I'm praying that your spirit would move in our hearts. Lord, convict us of where we have gone wrong. Convict us of our sins. Lord, lead us to a place that we could spend some time with you just in pure awe and adoration of what you have done for us. Lord, we say it so many times that you died for us, you died for us, you died for us, that it's easy for us to take that for granted. But Lord, the implications of your death mean our redemption and your glory. So God, I I thank you. I thank you that we can get at your feet and that when we do that, Lord, you you don't cast us aside or... Kick us to the curb, Father. But instead, what you do is you lovingly embrace us. That's what the cross means. And so, Lord, again, I am asking and I am praying, let each and every one of us be able to fall at your feet this week and spend some time in worship to our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Redeemer, both now and forever. Amen.